0: Episode 193, Kurt Wilkins, CEO of Hire Better and Managing Partner of B Cave Capital. So my favorite mistake, my biggest mistake, is trying to do this without an operating partner. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Kurt, his companies, his book, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraben.com slash mistake 193. Thanks for listening. Well, hi everybody! Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Graven. Our guest today is Kurt Wilkin. He is a co-founder and CEO of the company Hire Better, and he's managing partner of Bee Cave Capital. So, prior to founding Hire Better, Kurt founded and led the Controller Group or TCG, a professional services firm that focused on uh, accounting, technology, and recruiting. It was acquired in 2006, and he's the author of a new book. It's titled "Who's Your Mike." The subtitle is, uh, get this, A No Bullshit Guide to the People You'll Meet on Your Entrepreneurial Journey. So you can learn more, um, uh, hirebetter.com or Kurtwilken.com. It's W-I-L-K-I-N. Look for links in the show notes. So um, Kurt, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Mark, I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. I love what you're doing to highlight mistakes and learning from them. <laughs> Well, um, thank you for that. Uh, I'm looking forward. It's going to be a no bullshit conversation, right?
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it.
0: Now, um, you know, Kurt's bio says, I love this. It says, uh, describes him as coach, mentor, entrepreneur, and proud mistake maker. So I you're, you're in the right place. Hey, man, you talk about mistakes. I am absolutely in the right place. So thanks. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I'm in my second home. Well, I'm, I'm happy you're here and look forward to talking about your book and and other things from your career. But as, as we, we normally do here, proud mistake maker, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Man uh, you know, with the, the controller group that you just described, I had a partner
1: and uh, he was really the guy that got stuff done. And my execution partner, I was the idea guy, maybe decent sales, biz dev guy. We had a great run, as you mentioned earlier, was a successful exit. When I bought Higher Better, I didn't quite appreciate how much Brett brought to the table and how much I needed that execution partner. So my favorite mistake, my biggest mistake, is trying to do this without an operating partner. And uh, boy, I spent five years beating my head against the wall until I finally uh, realized what I was missing and uh, went out and found one.
0: Wow! So um, I think there's a lot to to dig into. I mean, I appreciate you sharing. the mistake. Let, let's let's talk about you know. I mean, I guess first off, before maybe this ties into how did you come around to realizing the mistake? I know you said it took five years. Like, what what were some of the symptoms? I mean, looking back at it now, what were some of the things that were going wrong or not happening without that execution partner?
1: Yeah, you know, we we were growing rapidly, and I, I'm, I'm very open and honest about this in my book, by the way. But very, we were growing rapidly at Higher Better, growing. 30 or so percent per year, which is pretty good for a services firm, but we weren't profitable. And I kept telling myself, oh, we're just scaling. We're you know building for the future and you know all this crap that, and I'm not a very good manager of people or just manager of details. And uh, I, I just kept telling myself the story that we were spending money as investments. And really we were just pissing away a lot of money. So that was one. And we see that a lot with our clients. If you're reach some sort of plateau or if you realize you're just not profitable or maybe you could be much more profitable. Those are generally symptoms. Uh, The other was, man, I had a list a mile long of projects I wanted to do and why don't we do this and we need to start implementing this and, uh, you know, I just, I I made the team like a five-year-old soccer team where you're kind of chasing the ball and really no true team And, and it was just a bad leadership on my part and, and, uh, Maybe, maybe bad followership
0: on their part. I'm not sure. Maybe they were good followers because they do what I asked them to. So tell us, I'd like to hear a little bit more of the context. When you talk about um, buying the company was a, a, a founder still involved or I'm just curious to know some of the dynamics of that transition. Yeah. Yeah. With, great story. Yeah. Uh, great, great question. So with the controller group, I founded it with, uh, with uh partnered with
1: Brett Lawson and Kathy Schrock. And then when I, uh, left there, I was really looking for what I wanted to do next. And there's a longer story, but the, the short story is I, I I I tried to buy a couple of companies that were more tech focused and not people focused. I was, was tired of dealing with people. People suck. So <laughs> I wanted to find something that wasn't focused on people. Mm-hmm. And I realized at the end of the day, I'm not a tech guy. And I, I kind of stumbled upon hire better. And it was a a recruiting firm and I, I did things differently. And I think the recruiting industry is broken but uh, it was a very small firm at the time. There was a founder involved. I was going to buy it and put one of my former employees in charge. And I was just going to be a chairman or, you know, passive investor. And after about six or nine months, I realized that the founder was as great as he was and smart as he was, he was unemployable. And so we we parted ways and I just, I dug in and, you know, five years later, I look up and like, wait, I was supposed to be a passive investor.
0: Yeah. So, you, I mean, you. You not only survived. You, you. You said you were growing. Um, as this re- realization of the mistake or what was lacking really, really sunk in. Like, was 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 it a gradual recognition? Was there kind of a, a big aha moment? And and you know, how, either way, how did you adjust? Did you bring in that that kind of person?
1: Yeah, you know, I I probably had a solid operating partner all along, but she didn't push back against me as much as she needed to, which I think your strong, your operating partner needs to. So if I disagreed with her, even if I was super friendly about it, she would go along with it. Right. And so we just didn't make with Brett, we kind of fought a lot, but we always came up with the right answer, no matter, you know, what the right answer was. Um, And uh, I, I don't know if it was gradual. I, I, I think, the first three or four years, you're like, "Hey, we're just paying myself nothing. Credit card bills going up, and and just the story I kept telling myself is we're investing for the future." And then I, I looked up and realized we're we're really not building something for scale. We're not building systems and processes and structure. We're just fighting fires. And uh, that's probably the aha was like, "Oh crap, my credit card debt is is through the roof. I'm not making any money. I'm busting my ass." And as I say in the book, I had built a lifestyle business for everybody but me. And That's a quote from a good friend who came in and. And dug in and, and and tried to help us understand what our challenges were.
0: So you you mentioned the woman who was working with you here as an operating partner. Were you able to work with her so she could adjust? I mean, I don't know if she would come on and say her favorite mistake was not pushing back hard enough on Kurt. Was was there a matter of making an adjustment or bringing in somebody different?
1: You know, I we probably if knowing now. Or knowing then what I know now, I think we would have been able to adjust. But at the time, I think neither one of us really understood what was going on. And then later I read Rocket Fuel by Mark Winters and Gino Wickman. If you've read that book, it's a great book about the difference between the visionary and the what they call an integrator. Um, if I have read that before, it would have been eye-opening and maybe we could have um, made some changes. But uh, she she actually had a chance to go back and run her family business, and it was a op- opportunity of a lifetime and I, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to get in the way of that, so it really worked out best for uh, all involved at the end of the day and it allowed me to go
0: find you know the right uh, longer term operating partner mm. And so then how much longer has is has, has that person been in place? Is that playing out the way then way, the, the the way you would have wanted?
1: Well, it's, it's great that you asked, Mark, because we've talked about favorite mistakes. Let's talk about a little bit deeper, um, and I'll, um, I'll share what I can. Uh, so long story short, we were wasting money, as I mentioned before. We we're inefficient, and then we brought in an operating partner who came in, and she was a great turnaround person. She cut costs. She uh, right-sized the team. We raised prices to be where we needed to be. We cut costs. We were very, very profitable for a couple of years, uh, under her guidance, um, but what I learned was she wasn't a growth partner; she was a a turnaround partner. And you know, so there's a a different um, person for every season. And uh, I, I learned that uh, that she was great for that, but she wasn't great for growth. So we we ended up parting ways. And and uh, I'm so excited and happy that we worked together because she really saved our bacon. And then I brought in uh, a friend. Uh, from YPO who uh, came in and uh, did a great job on the growth side and he had some health challenges. So he, he um, decided to, to step away. And then about two years ago, I brought in Cisco Sacasa, who, uh, is who uh, is, I liked him so much that he, uh, I made him my CEO about okay. a year ago, a year and a half ago. Hmm. And so I've stepped aside from the CEO role, which has been really um, great for me to go do what I really enjoy doing and love to do. And and not the not run a run a company that's not my bag.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you know, our our one of our themes here on, you know, my favorite mistake is, you know, embracing the learning from the mistakes to not beat someone up for um making mistakes. Um but, you know, to acknowledge them and um you know, so I want to come back to that phrase you use of being a proud mistake maker. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Like what that mean, that phrase means something to me, but I, I want I want to hear what it means to you,
1: you know, I'm very I, I very much have the belief that we learn best from our own stories, our own experiences, and definitely from our own mistakes if we have the right attitude. And I like to say the bigger the shit show, the bigger the less I'm going to learn. So it just allows me to to learn. I've I've tried to make that into a calling card both for myself and, and this book. So it's really this book is a series of stories from other other people. Hopefully you can learn from their mistakes and their stories. But I think if if we only look in at our at our successes and pat ourselves on the back, we're never going to get better. And I'm a lifelong learner. I want to I want to learn. And, and a couple of years ago, I think I learned, Mark, that the more I embrace my mistakes, the more authentic I become to myself and to others. And so that's really been my MO is try to uh, tell people we all make mistakes. Everybody, your listeners aren't sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, Kurt and Mark, they're perfect. Bullshit. We're so (laughs) flawed. It's ridiculous. And I want everybody to know that, that they're flawed and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And it's what we, it's not the mistake we make. It's what we learn from it.
0: And so that, and that's powerful. And I'm 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 curious, you know, with, within higher better or you know previous companies that you were involved in, do you think being a proud mistake maker is part of that to set an example for others? Do you want to create a culture, a team of proud mistake makers? Tell tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, you know, in my perfect world, we we're an entrepreneurial company, and, and many of your listeners probably are too. And if you don't make mistakes, you're not trying, you're not growing. And if there's anything I could impart on my team and your team is to try make a mistake, learn from it, move on. If you don't make mistakes, you're, you're just, you're not entrepreneurial enough. You're too safe. And if you don't learn from your mistakes, then you're, we got a bigger, you know, another problem, but I I want you to make mistakes. I want you to learn from it. And I want us all to acknowledge, don't hide from your mistakes. If you hide from your mistakes, then you're a
0: coward. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious, you know, in your role now with BK of capital, how how does that mindset that you have affect decisions on either making an investment or how you are involved in in coaching or mentoring a company you've invested in? Are are you looking for companies where, as you put it, there's a bit of a shit show? Is that an investment opportunity <laughs> to an extent? You know, um, I, I invest in people, and if
1: the people are hum, uh, humble enough to re- recognize their mistakes and 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 be a learner that's one thing. If it is a shit show, which, which some of them can be, I try to, I try to avoid them because that just means it's, uh, sometimes it's too hard. Um, but if, if, a, if a founder is, you know, the tight mark, they're too proud of themselves they're the smartest person in the room, you're, you're they kind of look at, uh, poke their nose up at you. If you have a, you know, Arkansas, uh, uh banner in the background because I went to Arkansas. You you know, I I want to be around people who um, are willing to make both make mistakes, but then also accept that they do make mistakes. Mm
0: -hmm. And I mean, it sounds like there's a a matter of degree. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the idea of there are small mistakes, early mistakes that you can learn from, that you can build upon. But here's what I I would propose. I want to hear your reaction. the idea that we're going to learn from mistakes and embracing that doesn't mean we can do any wild, irresponsible, stupid thing and say, well, I'll, I'll learn from it. Like how, how do you find the balance between, uh, let's say, you know, embracing and celebrating uh, relatively small learning experience mistakes versus avoiding, looking to avoid something that would say a mistake that tanks a company? That, that's
1: a great, great point. And I look, I'm not sitting here saying everybody just make mistakes all day long. That's not what I'm saying at all. But let me let me tell you what I tell my boys. I've got three boys and they're all in their late teens, or early 20s now. What I tell them is I want you to make mistakes. I'm here to help you make mistakes, uh, but I'm also here to help you uh, not make the life altering mistakes. So that's what you're talking about. You know, getting somebody pregnant or getting in a drunk in a car with a drunk driver, you know, things that are going to change your life in a negative way. Those are the mistakes to avoid. Kind of the same thing with your team. If it's a matter of you know saying yes to a ten percent discount to a client all day long, if you if we don't like it, we'll talk to you later. But to um, you know hide something material from a client or from from us is big mistake.
0: Yeah. Um, before we talk about the book, and again, our, our guest is Kurt Wilkin. The book is uh, Who's Your Mike. Um, you know, two other things stood out to me. You know, from from your bio, Kurt, when you talk about learning from other people's mistakes or learning from mistakes, you, you you talk about seeing your dad struggle as an entrepreneur first off, and then you talk about being part of uh, joining a failed, what turned out to be a failed startup in the dot com bubble. I'm, I'm wondering if one or both of those, you, you know, I guess, observing your dad and living through that in a way, like how how did that influence your view on mistakes or help you as an entrepreneur and investor.
1: Yeah, I may have interesting stories for both. Let me start with my dad. My dad was probably the smartest person I know, but my dad was was uh, very very cheap, and he wanted to uh, he wanted to do everything himself. And so the mistake that he made was not have an operating partner, like I've talked about, or really being. Be, he, being too proud to, um, not proud enough to, to delegate some of those other tasks to people who are better than him and frankly a lot cheaper than him, and so he struggled. It's hard to be a, a one man entrepreneur if you're not delegating anything. And I, honestly, I don't think I learned that until much later in life. But now that I kind of put two and two together, that's definitely a, a lesson learned. On the other, the the dot com, just the biggest lesson there was it was dot com heyday, late nineties, early two thousands, and we were a, a licensed sports product. We're selling on the internet or e-commerce licensed sports products like koozies and hats and t-shirts, whatever for football, baseball teams. And we um, we raised five million bucks on the back of a napkin. We we launched, and we knew we needed to raise money in uh, like late late two thousand or something like that. And uh, I was I was not on the board, but I was uh, like the finance guy, sit around the board meetings, and we were needed to raise money. And uh, all the board members were like, no, we're not going to raise money until we're a million, a hundred million dollar valuation. And there was one board member who says, guys, if we can raise money now on a $20 million valuation, let's do it because you never know when this thing's going to dry up. And everyone, i oh, poop, you know, this is things going on fire. We're going to a hundred million dollars. And as you know, the the, bill, uh, the bubble burst and we ran out of money, couldn't raise money. So uh, um, just a lesson learned at some time, you know, take, you, don't, you never know what tomorrow's going to look like.
0: Yeah, and it seems like there's you know a lesson you brought up earlier this uh, this question of spending money to invest in the future versus trying to become cash flow positive or at least break even. I mean, you know, there, there's there's a big. I'm, I'm I'm curious how you think through this big decision for a startup or a company that is still growing really quickly how do you think through this question of really uh let's say swing for the fences as some people might put it versus saying well we're stable and we can fund our growth but we might be growing smaller there, there there it could be a mistake one way or another right
1: yeah you know honestly i think that's a a choice for the founders and and the investors what i mean by that is there are times when i Working, you know, twenty-hour days for two weeks straight. Where I'm like, well, why don't I just make a lifestyle business and and just make this a cash cow and live happily ever after? And I see people doing that. And on the one hand, I'm envious of them. On the other hand, I, I wonder what they could do if they if they did the other. And uh, we, we made the choice to go as fast as we could and, and build it and sell it with TCG higher, better. We're, we're just, we're trying to grow and be a successful company, but it's not necessarily a lifestyle business. It's just, we're not trying to grow it to flip it. So it's a choice I think. Yeah. And it's not for everybody.
0: Yeah. But when, and there, there's, it seems a dynamic when, when a founder or founders bring on investors, now it's not strictly their decision anymore. Exactly. Your investors hopefully are aligned with what that decision is going to be. Right. And I, I'm glad you said that. And I
1: want to make sure that, that, uh, Folks know that when you bring on investors, you are it, treated it more than more sacred than you would your own money
0: mm. so with the book uh with Kurt, you know uh, you, you describe it as a business book for people who hate business books do you do you generally hate business books? You mentioned one that you really liked, but You know, well,
1: I wouldn't tell uh, Mark Winters and Gino Wickman this to their (laughs) face, but I think just the first three chapters is phenomenal, the best, right? The rest of it, eh, you know, Um, and that's generally how I feel about a lot of business books. I I believe uh, even when I was writing this book, you know, my my friend said, Kurt, you need to write a book about networking and connections and whatever. You're so good at that. I'd read that book. And and I'm like, guys, I got 30 pages of that. And then the, the rest of a 200 page book, I'm just making full of stuff, full of crap. And I think that's what a lot of people do. They've got a nugget, really cool nugget they want to get out there and then they have to fill a bind to sell a book. And there are good ones out there. Don't Please don't get me wrong. Um, so what I tell people is you know, 20% nugget, treat mine the same way, 20% nugget. I, I, I wrote it in ways that you could d- really divide each chapter. Say, I want to read a chapter about a legacy employee you outgrew that's in finance or accounting. Well, that's chapter one. Uh, If you want to read about the uh, big swinging, you know what, sales guy you bring in from the outside who's full of puffery and never going to deliver, that's chapter seven. That's Pipeline Paul. So each chapter is a different archetype that you're going to meet on the entrepreneurial journey. And it's just a fun way to learn these stories from from other people's successes and failures.
0: Yeah. So I know that's one thing you focus on is, you know, kind of thinking about the role of certain key employees as a company grows or, or progresses Use this phrase where you know yesterday's hero might become today's liability. Can you can you share, um, you know, kind of what what what's what's a common situation there? Somebody who is it, how, how common is it where somebody is a great fit for, let's say, the very early days of a startup? Everyone's got to do a little bit of everything, and as as opposed to getting into a mode now where it becomes a little bit more, if you will, professionalized, and certain functions where you you, you maybe want expertise as opposed to being able to do a Jack of all trades or a Jill of all trades.
1: You just nailed it. Everybody who's an entrepreneur has, or will have that challenge. And as you're getting off the ground, you need people with that entrepreneurial grit that will roll up their sleeves and do anything. You need to go visit a major customer one day. You need to go sweep the floors the next day. You need to whatever the next day. Those are great guys and gals to have when you start. And not to say that those folks can't grow into your VP of finance or VP of sales or whatever it is down the road. It just doesn't happen that often. And it's um as you grow and, and really go to try to scale to use that term, you need that specialization in certain areas. And not that you can't do it. I like to tell people if you've got a six-person leadership team and you're all going through this for the first time, you're gonna learn a bunch of lessons the hard way but if two or three of you have done this before and in, in their you know with a similar type company you're gonna you're gonna get there faster and more efficiently and with fewer heartaches
0: yeah and you know we've had a few guests on the show here frame their favorite mistake as you know a hiring mistake or not reacting to their perception of a mistake quickly enough um what what's your advice if You've hired somebody looked great on paper. You thought it was going to be a great fit. And then early on, you think you're, you're starting to have second thoughts. Like when, when do you sort of lean in and try to coach your way through it or, or fix the situation versus realizing it's a mistake? There's really no real good option other than finding somebody different.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. First, uh, there's a book out there called Hire Slow, Fire Fast, which is a great book. Uh, Thought you know, high or slow. Make sure that they're a good fit, both with their experience as well as their skill set, and fit into your culture. And then, when you realize that it's not, then then terminate quickly. The caveat is, did you uh, did you set them up for success? And uh, if if you didn't, then there might be an opportunity to do that. And if you did, obviously move quickly. The other thing is, Mark, look in the mirror. There's an epilogue to the book called When You're the Problem. The last chapter of the book is called When You're the Problem. You could have the best candidate of all time. They're a perfect fit. But if you can't get it out of your own way and get out of their way, you're going to be in this uh, uh, volatile cycle for, for years. So that's where you need to learn some lessons yourself
0: and acknowledge when you might be the problem. Yeah. And it might not even be a matter of a pattern. Then you might really say, well, hmm. If, if somebody says, you know, I, I keep hiring people who don't work out, if there's a pattern then that maybe points you more in the direction of um, looking in the mirror and, and deciding who the problem is, um, it's probably harder to figure that out if it's a newer business and there's not yet a pattern that's been established. If it's the first time where it could become a pattern, if you don't learn from it and adjust, it seems like that would be a harder situation to diagnose or come to terms with.
1: Yeah, but even still, we all have stories we tell ourselves about why so and so didn't work out, and you know we have a story for each one. Um, the um, the thing I wanted to mention that the, one of the common ones for your entrepreneurial companies and, and, and listeners is in sales. So as an entrepreneur, oftentimes we are the main sales agent, the main rain, rainmaker, and we can sell because it's our baby, and we can overcome objections, we can change prices, we can do whatever we want, right? and we bring in a salesperson and we 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 just say Ho, go sell we don't give them the tools and the case studies and the marketing collateral and the system and the crm and all that stuff and they try to sell like we do and they struggle and so we get frustrated so then we try to get a more you know get somebody from dell or some big company and they come in and they can't sell you what you're doing either cuz they're used to selling big company they can't sell your well, crappy startup so it's that's the biggest challenge of uh, many of our our clients have, and many of your listeners probably have.
0: And that's a situation I've seen, right? So I've, I've worked for two startup companies. Um, both were founded in, in Austin. And the, the, the one company, this is going back to 2000, 2001. It wasn't a, a quote unquote dot com. It was more of an enterprise software startup. So there were different dynamics, but there, the, the, the company churned through a lot of salespeople. And I recognized the one issue of, um, someone who had come from a bigger, really successful company who was seen as more of a quote unquote order taker. Mm. And that didn't translate well into a startup. And I know that, that, I mean, that's a sound, well, no, I guess that phrase was used in a disparaging way of like, well, (laughs) and it didn't mean that was a bad person. I think it was more a matter of bad fit. Right. And then one of the people back to the, back to the subtitle of Kurt's book here, um, the people you meet in your entrepreneurial journey. Um one one of those salespeople that didn't work out was of the big swinging bleep uh variety <laughs> people can fill in. They know the phrase. I don't want to have to tag the episode as explicit maybe. Well you already said it, but I'm fine. sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'll it's fine. Yeah it's not it's not that bleep about. No, it's my mistake getting hung up over that. But uh this this guy this guy was a jerk and was abusive. You know, I was working in like a sales engineer role. I'm not trying to turn this into a counseling session, but like there's this question at one point at what point are there behaviors that are just not acceptable compared to are you delivering or not? And this this guy had a Super Bowl ring and that was his, I don't know if you've run across if this is one of the people you've met, but I, I think he he banked a lot on that Super Bowl ring was going to impress people. Mm. And it didn't always work out that way.
1: Sure, I, you know not the specifically the Super Bowl ring, but everybody or a lot of these guys and gals have a proverbial Super Bowl ring they're swinging around with <laughs> the stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You you mentioned um, what kind of things might they do that make them maybe I didn't you didn't quite say this, but not a good culture fit. Maybe they're successful financially for you, but they're not a good culture fit. That's a that's another question you have to come across. You have to answer for yourself. Are you willing to put up with it and the good salespeople are going to have an edge and they might not be the same docile personality that your office manager has. And that's okay because you don't want that as your salesperson. So man, it's, this ain't easy. Let's just put it
0: that way. (laughs) There's a a lot of room for mistakes, but again, as, as you're emphasizing Kurt and we try to focus here on the podcast, you're going to make those mistakes, but admit them, learn from them. Don't repeat them. That seems to be the key. Love it. So one of the things I wanted to ask about the book, there, you know, it's kind of a broad statement related to the book. We're saying, you know, the 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 modern workplace is a dumpster fire. So, more specifically, like what what are the biggest uh, sparks of said dumpster fire in a modern workplace? The the fire starts somewhere somehow.
1: There's just a lot going on, obviously, with the the out output of the of the pandemic and and with this whole great resignation and now this quiet quitting and and work from home work from the office uh if you read Tim Ferris's four hour work week that's a bane of a lot of uh, entrepreneurs existence uh you know so we're just trying to deal with people as I said before people suck they're also the most beautiful thing in the world but it, it's hard to wrangle you know uh-huh. a, a, and build a good team
0: so this this phrase uh I'll, I'll ask you before we wrap up here quiet qu- quitting is that a real thing or is that bullshit is that a bullshit phrase
1: Well I don't know who who uh, trademarked it uh, you know the guys at TikTok do a great job with that but you know I think it's been going on for years and and we we probably have a lot of it in our organization and you do too they're just kind of coasting is the way I, I put it and like I mentioned with Tim Ferriss's 4-hour work week those he, he basically uh encourages people to work as little as possible and their you know but, but have as much fun as possible and on the one hand, I'm I'm envious of those guys that you know take every Friday off and don't work on the weekends and don't pick up their laptop after five p.m. And so, I can, who's who's to blame? Them On the other hand, if I'm paying you for a, a full job, I I want to get a full job, right? What about your full effort during yeah, during that, that time period? Well,
0: and there's there's a question of how do we define full? Is that a forty hour work week? Does a startup environment require? Does does is the is the quote unquote bare minimum for that what might be considered above and beyond in in a different workplace kind of an yeah. older bigger corporate setting versus um, not being a co founder but being an early employee are you willing to to grind or hustle or you know all these different words that are used um, to really to really make that succeed or is it just a job
1: yeah I think you said it if if you're going to be working for an entrepreneurial company you better have a little bit of that uh, that hustle as you said. And it's not a, it's not a lifestyle. Uh, It's not a, um, when I say lifestyle, it's not a um, nine to five, it's not a 10 to four or whatever, you know, kind of term you can use, but it's also tremendously fun and exciting and, and
0: uh, you might have an exit. And so there's, there's lots of good things that come with that as well. Mm -hmm. And then the the other phrase you mentioned, the great resignation, Um, there's some people saying, well, that's been going on for a long time as well. Do you, do you agree? Or is that a new, are there elements of this that are a new dynamic?
1: You know, I think it's kind of like quiet quitting. It's a great buzzword that gets press clippings. Uh, It it has uh, the number of people who have resigned and uh, has been increasing over time. So that's not new. What happened was during COVID, there was a big stop. Everybody, no one moved. Everyone was afraid to move. And so then the next year, it was just exacerbated by so many people that, that were, really looking for something new. So what they are looking for, we we do know this, for the most part, generally speaking, they're looking for purpose. They're looking for for mission. They're looking for a place that has values that align with them. So that part has been growing and is here to stay, I believe. A paycheck is obviously needed, but it's not the only thing for most people. Yeah.
0: And- Back to the subtitle of your book and the, the the title of the book again by Kurt Wilkin, Who's your mic? A new, a no, a new, that's my most recent mistake. Not a new bullshit, a no bullshit guide to the people you'll meet on your entrepreneurial journey. And it sounds like you've described some of those people. Some of the people you'll meet share the passion, or willing to put in um you know, a lot of work to grow a business. And then some people you meet who are just in a different place looking for something that is, uh, not as demanding time-wise and, and as with all things, I'm sure it's a matter of just finding the right fit for the right situation, whether you're that job seeker looking for a change or an entrepreneur looking to hire for your team. Yep. So, uh, Mike, well, Mike, uh, another mistake. This is a Friday afternoon podcasting adventure. I've long gotten over trying to edit out my mistakes, but uh, the author and our guest is Kurt Wilkin. The book is Who's Your Mike? Um, I'm going to try to say it correctly this time, a no bullshit guide to the people you'll meet on your entrepreneurial journey. And I've had fun saying no bullshit. So uh, <laughs> Kurt, it's been fun having you here. I uh, really appreciate everything you have to share today.
1: Hey man, Mark, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you applauding and uh, uh, the
0: the concept of the mistake and helping people learn from it and being okay with that. Well, thank you for being okay with it, leading by example and, and sharing your stories. Really appreciate it. Thanks again. Well, thanks again to Kurt Wilkin for joining us today to learn more about him, for links to his own website, his book, his companies, and more. You can look for links in the show notes or go online to markraben.com slash mistake 193. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.